Welcome, friends. It is Matt Weaver with BibleTruthProject.com here with another episode. And um, we are going to be discussing a fundamental um, subject, something I don't think I've addressed before, really. And this is the issue of the resurrection. This is something that growing up uh, we heard about here and there. Didn't hear a lot about it. We just know that there's a resurrection. But as far as specifics, uh, a lot of different things like that. I think I think the general rule of thumb is that there is really not a whole lot of conversation about it. But about two years ago, um, it kind of made me kind of made me start pondering this whole this whole issue in question. And I've come to some conclusions here in the last two years. Uh, I've had several things that have kind of pushed me the right direction, if I can say it that way. I had uh, I had a uh, uh, something take place. It was just the Lord getting my attention, if I can t- say it that way. I, I view it as that. Um, kind of putting the right questions in my mind. So I had some, nothing major, some, just some minor medical things that uh, caused some uncertainty. I wasn't sure what's going on. I, you know, a lot of questions can happen when we have pains and and different things that can go on and we don't know exactly what's happening coming from etc and um, through all of that the lord was you know obviously when you have things and again i'm not going to get into details it wasn't anything severe or serious um, but but when we we recognize the fragility of our our bodies we recognize that this body that we're in is not going to last forever. And when we really, really think about that, I think most people try not to think about that. And they, they are grossly unprepared, if I can say it that way, to confront that reality. And then when a friend or even a family member passes away, we are all of a sudden now we have to deal with the reality of death. And this is something that obviously growing up was, I, I just don't like death. I don't like anything surrounding that. I'm, I just, it's something that it doesn't, I don't know. It's, I don't think there's a lot of people that really like death, but it's, it's definitely something that it's like, ugh, you know, I stay away from that. And that's, there's good reasons for that. God is a God of life and he's not a God of death. And so we, we have a natural affinity to life. And that's God-given and God-imputed. We want to stay away from death because death is bad. Life is good. And this is God's, uh, this is God, you know, obviously giving us a message that God wants life for us. He doesn't want death for us. Death is bad. Life is good to the intention uh, of, of his will. But what, is, what does the Bible really say? I mean, I, I traditionally heard up in, you know, heard growing up in church and Sunday school and things like that, that, well, you know, there's, at the end, we're, Jesus will give us eternal life. He'll give us eternal life. We're gonna have, if we believe in Him, He'll give us eternal life. But the specifics, as far as what that meant, and what was involved with that, was never really discussed a whole lot. And I and I, and I have picked up stuff here and there along the way, uh, in my journey that, you know, I kind of had a general gist of it, but I didn't really solidly cement if I can say it that way, solidly cement this thing in my mind as far as exactly what does the Bible say. And I looked to some of my favorite Bible teachers as well to help me understand from their perspectives. And everybody might have a slight nuance and angle, but they also pointed me to the key verses that the Bible speaks about. And we're going to look at that too today. And uh, and really, let's just, you know, from a, from a face value standpoint, what does the Bible really say? And if you look at just the fundamental dynamics, okay, everybody is born, 
I've, I think I would have said this before. I know I did in, in messages that I preached that we don't have a choice. We are born. We are, we don't have any say in the matter. So I didn't have any choice whether to be born or not. So I'm born. Boom. I'm alive. I've been given life. Okay, so what am I supposed to do with this life? Is this life for me? Or what is it about? Why did I come? Are we just a, a, a uh, some kind of a mishmash of, uh, you know, atomic particles that happen to come out of the primordial soup of, you know, evolutionary um, happenstance? And really what's, you know, we're just basically an animal, make yourself happy, do whatever. Um, you'll soon be gone, so enjoy what you can. That a little bit is, I mean, in some people's mind, that's kind of the natural tendency of our body. Yet, deep inside, we long for more. It's like, this can't be the best that God had intention. This can't be everything that life is about. And I think that is why people throughout history have always reached for deity. They've always reached for something bigger than themselves. Even scientists are saying, well, there's some intelligent design. We just reject it. It has anything to do with religion. Well, Ultimately, either there is a God or there's not a God. Either we were created for life or we were not created for life. And beings that we're alive obviously means that we were created for life. And, and the Bible, how would I say this? this? This was, the Bible does the best job of describing the situation of what happened, what took place. I'm not getting into a ton of details with that. But really in a nutshell, if you look, God created us for life. He put us in the garden. We had a specific task. We would dress and keep that garden. And we were to uh, to live in His presence, and we were really imagers of of uh, of, of God, of the Father. And we uh, obviously Adam fell, given the choice. He gave us free will, so that we're not just inanimate robots doing whatever. We actually have a choice in the matter, and we can choose to rebel and pay the consequence. But God's heart in all of this had been re- it was redemption. If you really go down through the Bible, the story of redemption is magnificent. Uh, it's all through it. So this whole story of human, of, of human, uh, humanality or bibliography, if you look at just the Bible, the narrative of the Bible is God's story of how redemption has come to play. But what is the conclusion of that? So, you know, you've got all this stuff that God's revealed through thousands of years and you have all these people that have died, literally, you know, millions, now billions of people um, for every four people born today. Uh, there's two people um, that passed. So yeah, we have more people living than die, uh, which is an interesting thing. I mean, I looked at statistics roughly just cause I'm, um, that's typical for me. And it, it would appear that approximately two people die every second at the same time, four people are born every second. So we're at this interesting phase in human history where we have a massive increase in population. Um, but anyway, off subject a bit, but that is, that is the reality. So we are born into this world. We don't have a choice. God uh, allowed humanity to have a population on this earth, um, even though this earth is not conducive for eternal life. There is conditions that prevent us in the physical realm from living forever. God did, it was this way because of sin. So if you notice, the secret, if I can say it in the Bible, the secret to eternal life was the tree of life. God drove men from the garden to keep them from the tree of life because had they taken from the tree in the sinful condition we would have forever been stuck in a sinful state which in reality is really um the epitome of 
everlasting damnation. We are, you know, forever going to be living in sin. That is horrendous to think about. So God in his wisdom drove us from the garden so that we wouldn't have to experience an eternity of damnation, if I can say it that way, of, of living for sin because it's so absolutely corrupting. And um, fast, you know, fast forward a bit, if you will. Um, his whole plan was to deal with the sin, deal with the nature, deal with those seeds, and then redeem us. And the fundamental, uh, the fundamental happenstance, if I can say it, or the incident, the event that changed everything was the event of the resurrection. Up until that point, you have no spiritual... Uh, transformation taking t- transformation taking place in people. Before that point, the dead die, and there's nothing seen of them after that. Now, I believe, as I would understand the Bible to say, that our spirits go to be with the Lord. Jesus uses the account of Lazarus dying and being in the bosom of Abraham, and there being a gulf between where Abraham was and where this rich young man was in, in uh, Sheol. And this whole picture really shows us uh, that there was a divide even in, in, in that understanding. Those who were in the faith of Abraham were in the protection um, of God, if I can say it that way. So long story short, again, and I'm trying to condense this because it really should take hours to, to convey something like this, but I don't want to waste your time. But really, so this whole central theme is life, everlasting life, eternal life. And if we notice, Jesus, when he starts coming to preach the good news, central theme is eternal life. It's to live forever. Now, what human doesn't want that? I think every human wants to live forever in a perfect state. If we could somehow, as, as great as life can be here, there's so much tragedy, so much sin, so much evil, so much corruption that it's difficult to get excited about thinking living forever in the situations we have today. But given the right state and the right environment, living forever can be, is the answer to what our hearts long for as humans. And that's exactly what God wants for us. He wants to restore the Edenic vision that he had from the beginning. He wants to bring us back into his presence, into the place where life can, can exist forever. Soon after the flood, you notice that men's life shortened dramatically. Obviously, it went from perpetual to a thousand years or less. And after several generations, God was so disappointed. Man was simply in all flesh, not just man, but all, all living things had corrupted itself so severely that the only answer for it was to severely shorten the length of days and to also destroy the wicked. And so you see the flood happening and you also see that he says the man's days will be 120 or less. So he fundamentally changes our environment to where this environment can only sustain life for about 120 years. And you rarely see anybody go over that. Occasionally you will, but you're talking probably 0.0001% of the population of Earth. It's really almost nobody gets beyond 120 years. Uh, even to get to 100 is a remarkable thing. The thought of getting to 110 or 115 for most is unfathomable. And most people that age are not necessarily excited that they're still living. Because this world does have a corrupting effect on human beings. It has a corrupting effect on plant life. It has a corrupting effect 
on uh, mammals and living things. There's all this bad things, if I can say it that way. But the Bible accounts for this. Uh, in fact, Paul records that, you know, all cre- creation is under this pressure, this weight, you know, subjected uh, or subjugated to, uh, to this corruption because of the sin. And it's waiting. There's groaning, earnest expectation for the revelation of the sons of God and the revealing of the sons of God. So what's that all talking about? trying to lay a little bit of foundation there. There's just some of the general thought pattern. Um, so what's that all talking about? Well, the central theme of Jesus' ministry was resurrection. So he could have died. He could have taken that and all great. But unless he resurrected, there was nothing to, um, there was no good news to his message. The good news came with the resurrection because he literally came to bear our sins, to take our burdens, to put on himself, the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah 53 says, the sins of us all, to take them, to deal with them, to go down into the depths of darkness, to go down into the depths of Sheol, if I can say that in the words of Psalm, uh, the Psalms, that he was in the depths of Sheol and he was awaiting to see would God resurrect him or not. And Jesus took that because that was the condition that we would have been in without uh, redemption. We would have died and our consciousness would have would have would have existed in gloomy darkness, as the Bible describes it, a, a gloomy darkness that is really a prison. It's a trap. It's a place of imprisonment. It's a place where we have no escape. And God pitied uh, the souls of men or the spirits of men that were was in that state. So he obviously made a way to give us hope, to give us a path to life. So that is, again, the metaphor goes back to the Garden of Eden to get us a path back to the tree of life so that we can live in it in an in an eternal state. So and this is the whole issue with the, with the resurrection. When Jesus resurrected, it fundamentally changed everything. Now you have a trumping of death, you have a trumping of sin, you have a first fruits of resurrection that took takes place. We believe in somebody who resurrected, and not only did he resurrect, he returned to God the Father. Um, and is living forever. It's he's living in a perpetual state of life, and this is sometimes it's when you put it in those words, it's hard for us as humans to even comprehend what that means. But Jesus is existing. He was a human, and he's existing at an eternal state of life, and that's exactly the promise for us that we will also live in an eternal state of life, or eternal life that our consciousness won't dwell in darkness but it will dwell in light um, that we won't dwell in 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 the torments uh, of Sheol or the grave or, or the, the underworld but we will dwell in um, in the presence of the Almighty in his city in the temple the imagery in the Bible is very clear there's these great contrasts and those who defy and disobey God chains into the underworld, into the darkness, into the, to, to the abyss to be dealt with on the day of judgment at the end. A lot of things to think about, a lot of things to comprehend. But this is just the journey that I've been on the last two years uh, is just been thinking about this and what does this all mean and how does this happen? That's how my brain works. I tend to try to tie things together. There's one, there's one section of scripture that I'm going to read that I think probably does about as good a job as anything to describe this whole issue. And that is 1 Corinthians uh, 15. 
1 Corinthians 15 was written by Paul dealing with the Corinthians. They had a, they were uh, culturally, they would baptize themselves for a dead person, hoping that it would give them life in the, in the afterlife. So, and it was obviously a pagan ritual. It wasn't a Christian ritual. But in dealing with this, um, there, there was some questions that life, you know, eh, it's not forever. You know, there is no thing, such thing as eternal life. And this was some of the conversations that was going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul writes this letter. And this is, this is what we're going to be reading starting verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the good news, or as most translations would say, gospel, but it means good news, which I proclaim to you. You also received it and took your stand on it, and by it you are being saved if you hold firm to the word I proclaim to you. Unless you believe without proper consideration, for I also passed on to you, first of all, what I also received. So Paul's saying that he received this good news. He's passing on what he received. That Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means the work of atonement. He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, Kepha, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to Jacob, then to all the emissaries, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, Paul. For I am the least of the emissaries, or apostles, as most translations would render, unworthy to be called an apostle or an emissary, because I persecuted God's community. But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. No, I worked harder than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you believed. Now, if Messiah is proclaimed that he has been raised from the dead, and this is the key section, I really want you to follow here. Um, take this and read this, because this is really where it's at. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, then our proclaiming is meaningless, and your faith is also meaningless. Moreover, we are not found... Or we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified about God that he raised up Messiah whom he didn't raise up, in, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Messiah have perished. Falling asleep, I'm just going to stop here for a moment. There's different references to this. This, and a lot of people say, well, there's uh, soul sleep. We just sleep, and then our next thing, our eyes open up. I, I choose to, to call this, there's a rest period. So those who are hidden Messiah, and there's other set of verses that deal with this, uh, go to be with him. So our spirit goes to be with him, and it's really a, a rest. Our spirit goes to rest in him, in Messiah, until this resurrection. Verse 19, but if, if we have hoped in Messiah in this life alone, we are to be pitied above or pitied more than all people. If, there, if the only reason, if we just believed in Jesus for this life and that's it, we're to be pitied above all people. But now Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits of the saints, if I can say that way, who have, who have passed on from this world. For since death came through a man, because of Adam, all of us are uh, subjugated to death, if I can say it that way. The, first, um, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah will all be made alive. But each in its own order, Messiah, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Messiah, then the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he destroyed all rule and authority and power. Now here's an interesting thing. If you notice this, Paul is speaking about a specific order of events. Uh, and it's probably something I'll leave for a different time. But just I just want you to notice, it's important to understand this. So, okay, Messiah... The order. He's talking about the order. So the order was Messiah and the first fruits. Okay, so it, it was reported in Jerusalem that there was saints resurrected when Jesus was resurrected, and they were seen for a bit, and then they were gone. Um, we can assume that he's referencing that. I, you, we don't have scriptural evidence for that, but that's just simply an assumption, as you would understand this. Then, at his coming, which means when Jesus comes back, those who belong to Messiah... All right, so the second, uh, if you will, resurrection, if I can say it that way, is going to be, and this resurrection isn't that, okay, the souls or the spirits aren't anywhere, and all of a sudden, boom, they're alive again. No, it's referring to, the best I have heard it described was by Derek Prince, and he described it as God is at work to restore everything, soul uh, or body, spirit, and soul, or soul, spirit, and body. And our spirits are restored through faith. Our soul is restored um, in, in death. And our body is restored in resurrection, if I can say it that way. Um, along those lines. But anyway, that, that's kind of the general consensus. Is that God is con he's doing each section at a time. So our soul's restoration comes through a dying to ourself. okay, Because it's something we walk in. Uh, the spirit by faith, believing in God against hope, and our body at the resurrection. So it's a complete salvation that God has for us. So the order, again, is Messiah, and the first fruits is when he resurrected. When he comes back, those who belong to Messiah, so we at that moment will be given our spiritual bodies. So our spirit will enter its spiritual body which will make it us visible to uh, this, this physical earth, if I can say it that way. Then at the end, so it's referencing another period of time when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father um, after he destroyed all rule and all authority and power. So in the Bible actually references another resurrection. Another resurrection is the resurrection of the dead, not just the living. We, by faith don't die we actually go on to be with the lord and we live forever but there are those who have died who are imprisoned in sheol according to the word to the bible that will that will be given up according to revelation to be judged of god this is what it's speaking of so there's really three incidences of resurrection jesus himself and and the first fruits secondly at his coming and thirdly after he has destroyed all those who oppose him, all who rule, all authority and power. Because he must reign until he puts enemies under his feet. So it's speaking about, as I understand it, the millennial kingdom uh, and that thousand year reign. The last enemy to destroy it is death. And if you notice in Revelation, it gives us that indication that death and hell are cast into the lake which burns with fire. So it's the last enemy 
to be destroyed. Notice Corinthians is written before Revelation. So this is, is obviously the Lord is inspiring Paul when he's speaking about this. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when the psalmist says that all has been put in subjection, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put all things under Messiah. Now, when all things become subject to him, then the Son himself will become subject to the one who put all things under him, so that God may be all in all. That reference in Revelation is basically just that. After the thousand years, there's one final rebellion when, the, when hell and all that is in it is opened up, and there's a last rebellion to take place. And at that moment, every opposition to this whole plan will be dealt with in that final judgment. Otherwise, verse 29, what will they do who are immersed for the dead? This is, again, what I referenced. They were, they were immersing for the dead from a pagan standpoint. And they're here you have Corinthians who are saying, oh, there is no, is no resurrection. So he's questioning them at their own culture. What will they do for who, who are immersed for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they immersed for them? And why are we in danger every hour? You know, what's the point? What is, what is the point... Uh, why are they doing this? Why are you immersing from the dead in your culture, if I can say it that way, um, when there is no resurrection? And then why are we in danger? Why do we go through this? What's the point? Verse 31, Paul says this, I die every day. Yes, as surely as the boast in you, brothers and sisters, which I have in Messiah our Lord, if for human reasons I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what good is that to me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, new section in the same chapter, talking about the resurrection body. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So Paul is referencing a normal fact of life that we understand that a seed, a plant, okay, let's say it's a stalk of wheat, it dies, the seed is taken, that seed is planted even though the seed is dead, but within the seed is what's needed to produce what is intended, okay, another stalk of wheat. This is the reference, he's saying that it's the same kind of deal. So what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. As for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but a bare seed. So this body is referencing as a bare seed. Maybe of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he planned. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So he's, he's again speaking about, you know, let's say for instance wheat. You're planting wheat. God gives each kernel of wheat its own stalk. Uh, of seeds, okay, just as he planned. All flesh is not the same flesh, okay? There's a flesh of humans, there's a flesh of animals, there's a flesh of birds, flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And I always kind of struggle, well, what's he kind of talking about? But basically it means this, we have human flesh that's not exactly the same as what the birds have, which is not exactly the same as what the fish have, which is not exactly the same, you know, as, as a lot of other, there's other types of flesh. He's also saying in verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. So we have earthly bodies, but there are heavenly bodies. The angels have a spiritual flesh. Uh, they're 
bones and flesh, maybe not blood, but they have spiritual bodies, uh, not physical bodies like we do. They're earthly, or we are earthly. But the glory of the heavenly, continuing, one is one thing while the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a spiritual body, there is also, or is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. The last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is of earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the one made of dust, so also are those made of dust. And like the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the one made from dust, so we shall bear the image of the one from heaven. So in other words, it's a very complicated language in a sense, but it's actually a very clear illustration. So reality is, okay, we've... We bear the image of our earthly fathers. We have been born in a fleshy body in the, in the lineage of Adam. And so in Adam, because of Adam's sin, every human being who has ever lived dies. But Jesus, to give us life forever, because life is good and God loves life, has given us a path to eternal life, a life again living, to, to be lived the way he intended it. So that in Jesus, in Yeshua, that everybody who believes will be given a body that can live perpetually in the intended place. And this body is not a body made after the same fashion as the body that we have now. So think of it this way. I guess it's easier for me to understand in this terms. There's our consciousness. So our consciousness is our person. It's our identity. It's who we are. It's, the Bible would kind of refer to it as our spirit. It's our consciousness. It's Our body is actually not our identity. It's this hunk of skin. And you occasionally get pimples and you get other things like that. We're not pimples. okay? The body gets that stuff and kind of does its thing. You can lose your hand. Your identity doesn't change. You can lose half your body. Your identity doesn't change. Your consciousness simply exists and lives in the body. But when the body is done... It's kind of like a shell, okay? And inside the shell, you have a sea creature, okay, living. It's, we, are, we are living and functioning in this skin, if you will. The time will come when this skin is over, and it's put into the ground. And our spirit, what happens with our spirits? At that moment, our consciousness doesn't end. Our consciousness remains forever. So what happens with the consciousness? Well, the Bible indicates that the, 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 those who put their faith in the Lord, you know, to, uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the, with the Lord, is what Paul says. So our, our consciousness goes to be with the Lord. It's our spirit, in other words, goes to be with the Lord. If, if we have lived in disobedience, our spirits go to be in Sheol, or in the underworld, the prison, the, the prison for those who are disobedient. Hell, Hades, uh, Sheol, speaking kind of the same connotation, which is speaking of a prison. So this is actual, in, in the basic form, what happens. And then at the resurrection, which is when he returns, our bodies will be raised and we will again be made visible to this natural world. That's this, the mystery that a lot of people get hung up on. The reality is our spirit is with him. So we're resting with him in the spiritual realm, but we'll be given uh, spiritual flesh bodies, if I can say it that way. And at that moment, we'll be visible again to this world. 
coming back with him. Continuing in verse 50, it's important to understand this. Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What decays cannot inherit what does not decay. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last shofar or trumpet, for the trumpet or shofar will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptibility, and this mortal immortality. But when this corruptible will have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the Torah. But thanks be to God who keeps giving us victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore, my, deliver, my dearly beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know your labor is not in vain. So the mystery of the victory is that we, to inherit the kingdom, have to have new bodies. We cannot inherit something that will be eternal in a corruptible state. So God has to change us, and this change in our body will take place at the last trumpet. So when that trumpet sounds, there's an effect it has, evidently, that it resurrects our bodies out of the ground, and our spirit meets our body, and in that state, we are able to inherit the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Jesus, basically, if you look in Revelation, it says when he returns, he will establish his kingdom on earth. His throne will be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be raised up to be the heights of the, of the hills and to all the nations will flow into it. There's so many scriptures I could get into, but really it's at his return. When Jesus returns, that this uh, will begin to be reversed. The curse will be lifted, if I can say that way, in the earth. The earth will start to produce again, will solve all the issues, all the pain, all the torment, all the disease, all the sickness. Everything will be dealt with at his return. But after a thousand years of, of being on this earth in a restored state, Peter also references this period as being the restoration of all things. Heaven is not a restoration of all things. Okay, Heaven is where God dwells. Restoration speaks of something that had been corrupted. Well, this earth is corrupt. It will be restored. That's what Peter's talking about. So Jesus, when he returns, will restore this earth with our help. And this is likened to the honeymoon phase of the new covenant. The new covenant will be established in Jerusalem in its fullest extent. We by faith are in this new covenant, but the fullness of the covenant is yet to come. The fullness of the consummation of the covenant, if I can say it that way. We're in a betrothal period waiting for the marriage ceremony. Uh, there's so many verses in the Bible I could get to that does that. But this is really the gist. Um, and I'm at 34 minutes. I could probably go for a couple hours. This whole picture, this is the answer. The, the reality is death has been, death will be put away. So right now death is still a reality. People are still dying. Uh, things are still dying. And it's still a reality. So death is still not put away um, in that sense. But it will be put away when Jesus returns. The last enemy he overcomes is death. And that will be taken care of at the end. But why he had to do it the way he does, you know, listen, I don't understand everything. I'm not God. I pale in on my understanding. God knows why things are done the way they are. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter because our life is in him. I just remember an incident with my one grandfather who passed away. Oh, probably 
10 years, uh, it was more than that, probably 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, he was 93 years old, had lived a good long life with very few health issues. And, you know, he was just, he was a very happy, uh, spry, spry, spry man who uh, very quickly had passed away, not of uh, serious illness per se, but from uh, had an aneurysm, I believe, and uh, passed away in, in basically 48 hours. Um, but on his deathbed, before he fully lost consciousness, he was making this motion with his hands. And uh, there was like basically kind of like scribble motion. And he, uh, he took that, uh, or my, my mom was standing close by and was trying to figure out what is he trying to do? It almost looks like he's trying to write. So she grabbed a paper, grabbed a pen and put it in his hand. And uh, they uh, basically took the pen, or he took the pen and he started scribbling out. Oh, yeah, sure enough, he was trying to write. Now he was, he was not in a, uh, he was not completely. How would you say it? He wasn't co completely. He wasn't like in a coma. Kind of, kind of yes, kind of no. So like, I mean, my grandma when she passed away was in a coma. You know, obviously not responsive. He was moving his hands. Uh, but he wrote two legible words, and the two legible words were Jesus and fellowship. So in that moment, uh, as I understand it, and I believe that to be true, that he really was fellowshipping with Jesus. His spirit was about to leave his body or even had left his body, or, you know, it was right at that moment, and Jesus had come to, uh, to, to give him peace and comfort. And that was that reality um, that he was experiencing. So I'll leave you with that. It was an interesting thing that I remember. And putting the pieces together has been interesting for me. And I certainly ha don't have all the answers, but I have more than what I had. So I hope, this, I hope this is encouraging to you. And until next time, God bless. And let's keep marching on.